Welcome to Plugged and Unplanned. I'm Tony Nash, the CEO of Booktopia, and I'm excited today because I've got a guest who is um, going to come with a hell of a lot of life experience. He has written a book, or he has, not, uh, he has written a book but he's also um, uh, been involved in producing an audio book for, for a very good cause, and we'll find out a bit more about that. I, I have uh, Rob Redenbach. Have I pronounced that correct? Redenbach? As an Australian, you've done a perfect job there, Tony. Good on you. Thanks, Rob. Um, and uh, and welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Good on you. That's so great. So as I was mentioning just before we went on air, that um, the way I like to do this is a little bit like us having a, a lunch together and, and our audience kind of eavesdropping in on a conversation. So um, we can, we'll just go on a, on a journey and explore a few things. I'm very interested to hear about you know some of your your life experience but before we do that why don't we just talk about this book project that you've been involved with because you you were the narrator of this of this book um and just tell us the book the name and it's an audio book it's currently only in an audio book form right that's right yeah and the name the name of it is called it's called poetry for men who thought they'd never like poetry and uh like a lot of guys i was sort of a long period of my life when I was a bit resistant to the concept of reading poetry. You know, if I think back 40 years ago when I used to work on building science as a labourer in Tasmania, the idea of having anything to do with poetry would have been as foreign as you could get. Uh, but over the years, I've met some different people and um, one of the things that sort of evolved in my particular journey was gaining an understanding and appreciation of, of poetry. And I've done a little bit of work with a great organisation called Brave Hearts. And I first spoke at their conference just before COVID. And then once COVID um, did what it did to the economy, including the events industry, uh, they asked me to come back and do some work online with them. And that's really not my format. Uh, but I, I ran an online uh, session for them. They liked it. I didn't. And afterwards, I thought, well, what can I do to sort of help them and they rely a great deal on events to get funding. So I thought, well, I'll put a small audio book together of my particular favourites of uh, poems that I think are particularly valuable in an environment where there's stress or pressure. So I put that together and it's uh, been up since May and so far so good. Uh, it's starting to get traction and uh, all proceeds go to Bravehearts and I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to take some of your time and chat about it. So thank you for that, Tony. What specifically do Bravehearts, you know, given that that's your intent, just tell us a little bit about Bravehearts and what their their purpose is. Well, it was set up by a, a very impressive person, Hetty Johnson, and it focuses on um, protecting children, vulnerable children in particular, children that have been exposed to sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. So they go out and they provide programs and education um, in schools and they provide support for victims of child abuse. And it's a topic that, you know, it doesn't get as much media coverage as it should for the simple reason it's an unpleasant topic. And it's nicer to focus on things that make people feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, like a, you know, some type of a fundraising event where it's more, you know, fun and giggles. Uh, the reality is that there are children in Australia that have had 
horrific experiences and they need specialised support and empathetic support and that's exactly what great hearts do. And uh, like you, Tony, I, I speak at a few conferences and you, know, you, you cross paths with different people and you get insights into different organisations. But honestly, of the different organisations that I've worked with, I, I'd have to rank Bravehearts up there with the very best. Mm, interesting. So, and, and for those that are, I mean, there'd be many that are listening that are fully aware of the of the the travesty of the situation, not just in Australia but around the world. But um, how how bad? I mean, you mate, you're, you're doing this as a fundraiser for them, and you're perhaps not the the spokesperson of that organisation. But from your anecdotal experience, how prevalent and and bad is it, and and how much work do we have to do? Uh, short answer is it's worse than we'd like to think. Um, apart from my limited exposure to Brave Hearts, my wife is actually a child safety officer, so she's worked in, with the, uh, the Government Department of Child Safety in Queensland and New South Wales. And one of the, the really frightening things about that type of abuse is that it, it crosses uh, social divides. It's not uh, economically uh, specific as far as low socioeconomic. It goes from the left to the right, the full spectrum of the bell curve. And uh, one one case of abuse is too much. I don't have access to the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, the specifics, but I do know that it, it is a, a serious concern and a concern because of the long reaching shadow of that type of abuse. It doesn't go away quickly. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's there forever. And it's at an age when the PTSD, that trauma um, has, it, it, it really, you know, at a cellular level, it can really impact someone's health and well-being uh, and manifest in so many awful ways. I, I know it's a, it's a tragic thing. So, so you, you've put this book together. Um, you've acknowledged here on the, on, well, certainly on the Booktopia website on, and remember everyone, it's an audio book. It's an audio book, so when you look for it, it's in the audio book section, Poetry for Men. And uh, so John James Ingalls, Banjo Patterson, James Elroy, uh, James Elroy Flecker, and Percy... Percy Bishelli. Percy Bishelli, yes. So so they're just a few, and, and on our website, you can listen to a sample. So um, too easy, too easy, and it's, and it's absolutely going towards... A very important and and critical social cause. So, um, and and if not by uh, buying and listening to the audiobook, think about going to their website and finding out more. And perhaps you can do more to to assist Braveheart. Sounds like it's a, it's a good great... uh, good advice, Tony. They can make donations direct to the uh, Braveheart's website. Yeah, yeah, good on you. That's so great. So so that aside, um, and before we go into Nelson Mandela and and um, you know fighting um, causes across the world that you've been uh, involved with and helping out in in important uh, human causes, poetry. So um, it's I guess it's one of those uh, areas of literature which has been with us for for centuries and millennia, um, and 
it's been it's everyone knows it and everyone can think of a poem um but i guess it's not that it's lost its way but it hasn't probably it's lost its its um customer base over the centuries um i, I think customer but losing the customer base is a great way to sum it up yeah so so but what i mean just to give people i mean i've i've got certain um um, you know, C.J. Dennis for me as an Australian, um, he he is his his work is is brilliant and Banjo Patterson of course, um, but um, when I, I, look, when I was younger, I was I was writing my own poetry in my own silly kind of way. So I guess it's a it's a way of self expression. But um, what what has it done for you, or is it kind of? I guess I'm curious in terms of a meditation or in terms of a way of personal reflection. Is it easier than reading? What, what's your experience? I think part of the appeal for me is that, um, and it's it was crystallised just a few months ago. I was in Perth and I was uh, doing a little bit of work with a couple of guys that were uh, in the Australian SAS for a long time, and they had a podcast, and they were kind enough to invite me on, and we were chatting. And in the, the course of that, it came up that one of the uh, the guys who runs that particular podcast, he was talking about his own father and how he had a couple of go-to poems that were very important to him. And that, that struck me because I know that uh, you know, if you look at people like um, you know, Nelson Mandela, his, one of his rocks in prison, in the sense of a, an emotional strong point, was the poem Invictus. By William Ernest Henley, um, Winston Churchill, uh, his go-to poem, for lack of a better term, was "Charge of the Light Brigade." Uh, Abraham Lincoln had a poem that was particularly close to his philosophical outlook on life, and that was called "Mortality." And I think that there's something in poetry, and that something comes with time and with more than an understanding that you just read the poem once. For me, maybe it's because I'm a bit slow in a lot of ways, but when you really immerse yourself in the words of someone else that has sat down and pondered a particular element of life without sounding too philosophical, I think you have the potential to fast track your own understanding of important issues. And that's what happened in my case. And you know, um, you know, quite maybe close to 30 years ago, I used to live in New Guinea and that was pre-internet and I didn't even have television. So I spent a lot of time uh, filling time learning, you know, the classics of Banjo Patterson and uh, I found it a real comfort uh, and an understanding was gained that gave me an appreciation of words that I don't think I would have gained if I hadn't spent time reading and um, importantly, in my case, memorizing poetry. Mm. How, how interesting. I mean, I think everyone that's, that's here um, listening, um, if, if poetry has somehow been attached, I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's, a, it's a way of communicating for the ages, isn't it? I mean, it really does create the imagery uh, before movies ever existed it it was able to create um it's like acting um without having to be on stage um you can interpret it your 
own way. It it does. I mean, when I think about this, I thought, yeah, I could. I should read a few more poems. I'm. That's, oh. I've neglected that. It's. Um, I, th I think you're spot on. Have you, given that you talk about it more, um, have you? Um, I mean, have you? In your your travels and your meeting people, has it stimulated other people to get into that kind of go? Yeah, I'll, I should look at a few more poems. Or, or do you do you feel like you're a bit of an obscurity and a bit of a an odd uh, one? Well, I'm starting to think that it's a, almost a a, a quiet. Um, not something that people are ashamed of, but they're not particularly proud to say that they are interested in poetry for whatever reason. But what's happened since uh, the audiobook has been released is that I've been getting feedback from people and uh, it, it runs along the lines of, uh, like if I was to condense a lot of the feedback, is that and it cons con uh, consistently surprises me but they interpret the same poems so differently and what jumps out at them is very different to what jumps out at someone else. And yet there's a consistency in that it helps them to appreciate something that is important to them. And I chose just 10 poems. It took quite a while to select those specific poems. But if there's a consistent theme through the selection in the audiobook, it really is about dealing with adversity, understanding that there are obstacles. And one of the things that I like, and it's also one of the things that people have commented to me, is that there's a timelessness in it. Uh, yeah, and one of them uh, is from uh, William Shakespeare, and it describes the seven ages of man. Of course, that title's a bit sexist in uh, 2020, but it does analyse the phases that a person goes through. And if you look at... Uh, modern elements of personality profiling, whether it's DISC or the Herman Brain dominance or whatever it may be, there are lots of packages out there that try and, for lack of a better term, categorise or even pigeonhole a personality type. But if you read Seven Ages by William Shakespeare, they, he nailed it. <laughs> you know, 500 years ago, he, he nailed it, but not from the point of personality types, just through... The, the chapters of our life. And it applies whether it's male or female, but when you're an adolescent, you see the world differently. When you're in that, that prime hungry period where you're trying to make a name for yourself and you might have more than a healthy dash, might be unhealthy dash of ambition, but that's in there as well. But that fades with time and then you start to see the world in a slightly different way. And uh, that, Again, that timelessness that comes with an observation that was made centuries ago is relevant today. And uh, if you look at something like uh, Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley, it's quite a brief poem. I, I, there's no point in reciting it here, but it just describes the, the temporary nature of our journey. And uh, it's, it's almost comical, but it's not. But it just talks about you know, a pharaoh that no one knows the name of anymore and all that's left is the stumps of his uh, feet tucked away in the desert and then there's an inscription on the, the pedestal and my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And yet it, uh, in the, the poem it goes on to describe how nothing beside remains around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
And if you look at our bling society and this almost narcissistic drive of commercialism and marketing that wants people to rise up and be famous, and yet is that really something that has substance? And I think that one of the benefits of poetry is that it's a good leveller. It can bring you back and make you ponder things from a different perspective and, and a perspective that other people have pondered before. Mm, I, yeah, that's that, it's that universal um, connection of timelessness where, where many things, love, uh, despair, um, greed, envy, um, joy have all like you, you can you, you realize when you tap into to a poem like that you realize hold on a second these these are the same feelings and the same sensations that someone was feeling a hundred years ago 500 years ago a thousand and then all of a sudden you get this sense of of I don't want to say inner peace but a sense of like it's not just here and now that I'm experiencing this it's it's a human it's a human experience. Very true. So, I mean, I guess one of the things that hasn't helped poetry, and I'm only reflecting on it now, is um, in the, I guess, in the early 20th century when we started to have gramophones and um, there was the, the the silent movies and then you know, records being printed and then the music industry and then rock and roll and everything else that goes on. Um, you, you read some of the, the works that musicians and songwriters have put together and poetry is, is still there. It's just in, in the music that we listen to on a daily basis. I mean, if, you, if you've watched the movie uh, yesterday on... on oh, a great movie, yeah, and great example of contemporary living poetry too. That's right. Yeah, so I think I think sometimes we just forget, oh yeah, of course. I love the words to that song. It's just and and so many of the poets have just ended up in making tons of money because they used a different medium than they they did before. So it's it's still around, I guess. It's just in a in a different form. It is. Yes. Mm, I mean, so are you familiar with Rupi Kaur, the the poet over the last, that's kind of released her books in the last five or six years? No, I'm not. So her book, um, Milk and Honey and The Sun and Her Flowers. So um, astonishingly, I mean, she has sold 200,000 copies of her books in Australia. Really? That's amazing. I, I feel quite ignorant now that I've never heard of it. Isn't it great how you can get to you have a conversation, you hear about new things? Yeah, R-U-P-I. K-A-U-R. And if you read uh, the, and I'm just on the Booktopia website now, and if you read um, her book on Milk and Honey, which was her first one, um, it talks about, um, is a collection of poetry and prose about survival, uh, experience of violence, abuse, love, loss, and femininity. Um, and so, and in the world, she has sold millions of copies and it's been translated into over, I think, over 80 languages. So oh, this is brilliant. I'm so impressed. I'll be going online and purchasing it after our chat today. Yeah, so it's like, so it's still there. And I'm sure when her and her publisher sat down and go, oh, it's lovely, Rupee. I mean, I think we'll sell 30,000, you know, 10,000. Oh. Who knows what? Who knows how many they thought they were going to sell? But it just, 
us hit a sweet spot um, and then it can just go crazy and and so it's not like it's it's not like it's dead and buried and we're reading poet poetry and poems from from people who are dead and gone oh. um, it's it's still it's still out there and if, if you go to i mean like the, what i did is i went to booktopia and put in poetry went to the category poetry and then did the tab bestsellers and you can see um that there are there are there is a lot of i mean there's still like there's you know roomy in there and you know lots of old poetry as well but there is there is um there is still new stuff coming through as well it's not it's not dead but it's certainly not front and center anymore that's that's for sure so so hopefully maybe we just kind of and i mean today of course you've got the internet you can just do a search for the greatest poems of all time and you can you could probably you know just do it for free and, and be inspired and sit there and, and read I, I strongly encourage anyone to just to to jolt you know jolt yourself into action and and go out and read a poem i i'm i'm with you on that good on you thank you so what beyond that now let's talk about some of the your your adventures you've you've um you've been in many different places in the world um you talked about nelson mandela just share a little bit more then about your experience with him and then uh, well i was very fortunate to spend five years in africa uh, shortly after he became president and i stayed until just before he stepped down at the end of his term and uh, back then I, <laughs> I made a living a bit of an unusual way is to travel around the world teaching my own system of defensive tactics or self-defense to military and law enforcement agencies and uh, in early 94 just after the elections i didn't know anybody in africa i'd never been there before but i decided that i was really like a lot of people excited by the changes that were taking in taking part in south africa and i just thought well i'll go across there and i'll teach my training program to the security forces of the new south africa i didn't know anyone i just turned up and knocked on doors and went to police stations and army bases and invariably i was told that uh, i was wasting my time and uh, wasting the time of the person that i was speaking with and that i should go back to australia that went on for a couple of months. I went from you know, Soweto and Bloemfontein and Cape. But eventually I found one chap that was open-minded enough to have a look at my program. We ran a trial course, the feedback was good. That led to another course and another course. And within six months, I'd run courses for instructors from the South African Army, Navy, Prison Service, Drug Unit, Anti-Terrorist Team, and among others, Nelson Mandela's bodyguard team. And over a period of time, I was hired to train instructors that worked with his presidential protection unit. And then uh, the powers that be decided they wanted what they called first generation instruction. So I started to work with the team directly. And um, in the process, I was uh, very <laughs> lucky to uh, cross paths with him and have chats with him. And um, uh, little things like uh, when I, was, I met my wife in South Africa and when, he, when the president heard that I'd married a South African, he was kind enough to invite my wife and I along to the presidential estate to have lunch with him. And there's no big deal, like, there's no one there from the media or anything like that, but it meant a lot to me. And uh, I'll sort of go off on a tangent and give you an indication of his sense of humour, but he'd, uh, he'd met my wife for the first time and he looked at her and then he looked back at me and he, and he looked at her again and he said, uh, 
Madam, there are beautiful, very beautiful. <laughs> Tell me, why did you marry him? Uh, I don't think it's very funny. My wife still brings it up. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so uh, I was never part of the bodyguard team, but I did work with the team and you know, there's uh, occasions when we went out in the field as well. And it was a really uh, exciting period of history and I like on the radar of things I was hugely unimportant, but nonetheless I got to be the fly in the wall at a few different events and it was, uh, I felt very fortunate to have that experience. Yeah, it's like being, a, being on the coaching staff at an AFL or NRL grand final. A little, yeah. Yeah, I've done that, but I, I think that's a fair comparison. Yeah, yeah, that's um, and and so just to, to give um, me and the listeners what I mean, I, I could have gone around and knocked on doors and I, I could have told people that I, I can give my you know defense training, uh, but um, if I tried to execute that, they would have been laughing, you know, endlessly at, at what I know. So, you obviously must have had a lot of experience before. What were you doing? Prior to that, to, to immediately before I went to South Africa, I'd been in Papua New Guinea managing a security company, and uh, prior to that, I'd worked in right at the bottom of the food chain in the security industry in pubs and nightclubs in Melbourne and the Northern Territory. And uh, I'd, before that, I'd spent a few years in Korea, Japan, and China studying martial arts full time. Not one particular style, but quite a few different styles and Prior to that, I'd spent six years in the army. And uh, so I was no stranger to uh, tactical and physical training. And I'd had enough experience to have an appreciation of what was of value and what was honest. And in particular, by the time I got to Papua New Guinea, uh, I was managing a company up there that had 300 guards and we did all sorts of security from private homes and petrol stations and gold escorts and pubs. Uh, so Papua New Guinea has a lot of security challenges and um, I, I, was, <laughs> I was at the, uh, you know, the coal face with the guys and uh, I decided that you know, as good as they were in lots of different ways, they needed a bit of training. So I, that's really when I start, started to put the, the beginnings of my training program together. But I made lots of mistakes. But over a period of time, I identified what worked, what didn't work. And uh, in evolving and refining that program, by the time that I arrived in South Africa in early 94, I had enough understanding to be able to hold a conversation with someone who was skilled in that area. And I had enough skill, not a lot of skill, but enough skill to be able to demonstrate physically that what I was talking about aligned with uh, what was required in a physical situation. So some of the demonstrations that I gave, if I think back now, I, I would never, <laughs> never uh, conduct what was effectively a, a, an attempt to grow a business in that way. But I, I would you know, turn up and predominantly people would say we're not interested, go away. But occasionally someone will say, well, we need our subject matter experts. Why don't you come back next week and we'll have them here and you can give a demonstration. And uh, Then I'd go back next week and, you know, I'd have three or four or five subject matter experts. And then uh, we, we, <laughs> we'd do some 
hands-on stuff and it was fairly full-on. And then at the end, they'd say, okay, well, yeah, maybe you can teach us something. Um, and that's how it grew. So, um, so you kind of faked it till you made it kind of, um, but you, you had your, your base knowledge, but, but you just needed some good contracts to, to start kind of delivering and, and continuing to, to master the art of it, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I needed people uh, because at the end of the day, uh, defensive tactics and self-defense is about people. So it's more than physical skill, it's communication strategies as well. And you have to do that in a way where you're working with two arms, two legs, a body and a head. There's no point in me standing there saying, okay, well, if there are two attackers, one has a club, one has an each weapon, uh, this is what you need to do. I, I have to physically show that what I'm explaining verbally is capable of being performed. So that's where all the stuff that we see in, in movies and all the choreography and the, the ridiculous fight scenes that are so enjoyable to watch on a movie, uh, that, that has nothing to do with the realities of dealing with non-choreographed hostile aggression. So I had to present that in a way where people who deal with those challenges could say, okay, yeah, he's, he's probably on the right track. Mm. Well, I do. Uh, often they'd say, no, we don't like what you're teaching because it contradicts everything we've been doing for however many years now. Our whole syllabus is built on choreography and partner cooperation. And so it, uh, sometimes I was a square pig in a round hole. But in the end, it did work from a business perspective. So, so that means that you, 94 was when you started there and you said you were in South Africa for five years? That's right, yeah. So that takes you up on to the, the end of the uh, millennia, 2000 or so. What, what have you been doing over the last 20 years? Well, uh, when I decided to come back to Australia, uh, in, uh, when I was living in Africa, I was also doing work outside of Africa. I did some work in the US with groups like the um, Federal Bureau of Investigation. I spent four months in the UK living on base at Stirling Lions in Hereford with the British SAS, providing training for them, taking part in training with them, and then going back to Africa in between running courses and other places. And in that journey, uh, in particular, the, uh, that experience in the UK with the British Special Forces, that opened a door of a, a a personal contact that was involved with the Sydney Olympics. He was a former senior officer in the Australian SAS who'd been seconded to set up the, I think it was called the Dignitary and Athlete Protection Unit, the type of bodyguard team for athletes at the Sydney Olympics. So that uh, enabled me to then go from Africa to Australia. I did a little bit of work with the Sydney Olympic Committee from a business perspective, I certainly didn't know how to navigate those corridors uh, and financially it didn't work out well. But in the process of running that particular training and uh, the interactions along the way, I uh, had a little bit of media exposure. I think it was Channel 9's Today Show did a story on the training that I was providing. That led to some radio interviews. And then much to my surprise, I, I had a 
guy phoned me up one day and uh, said, oh, look, I've just listened to you, I think I was on the ABC or something. And he invited me along to give a keynote presentation at a conference that he was putting together. And keynote presentation wasn't in my vocabulary. I, I literally didn't know what it meant. I'd never been to a conference in my life. And when he explained what it was, uh, I'm thinking, well, what's the point of that? He wanted me to speak for an hour. I was living in New South Wales at the time. The event was in Queensland. And as he's talking, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'll have to get myself there. I'll have to pay my own accommodation. And he wants me to talk for an hour. How much is he going to pay? And uh, back then, I used to do seven-day and 14-day training programs. And uh, they were like multiple modules, physical components, classroom components, a lot of role-playing. They were very intense packages. And it, the, the idea of just talking for an hour didn't make commercial sense. But out of curiosity, I asked him, well, you know, what's your budget? And when he told me, I reflexively laughed because I thought he was joking. And then he thought that I was trying to negotiate a, a higher fee. And in the end, he, um, like he actually didn't pay me that much money by uh, professional speaking standards. But for me, it was more than I was earning for a seven-day package. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> so, and then they uh, flew my wife and I out for the event and it's a business class and I'd never flown business class before. They had a chauffeur at the airport and uh, they took us to the venue, lovely venue, opened the, the doors and there's a large fruit platter and a bottle of champagne and these flowers. And I remember saying to my wife, well, enjoy this because married to me, you get this once in your life. And... Uh, so we, that was in the afternoon. I was speaking in the morning. I got up in, early in the morning and went for a swim. And I came back and my wife said to me, so what are you going to talk about? And it was a business group. I think they were um, financial planners. And I said, well, I haven't decided yet. And she said, well, you better decide because you're speaking in you know, about half an hour. So I went across and I, I just got up there and I told some stories of you know how I um, managed to uh, get into the uh, arena of teaching groups like the FBI and the SAS. And um, at the end of it, three people came up to me and they said, oh, look, we're putting an event together, would you, three separate people, uh, we're putting events together, would you like to come and speak at our event? And I said, sure. And after 20 events, I was still saying to my wife, well, this will be the last one. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I stopped counting at 850. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, but... Uh, over the last 20, like that was 20 years ago that that started. But in between, uh, I've done a few other things as well. And um, even when I was speaking at, at events, uh, my, my program evolved to become a completely non-physical program. Uh, so it was more on the verbal strategies and methodologies of reducing conflict and building trust that evolved into more than just a one-hour program into half-day and full-day packages. Uh, again, word of mouth kicked in more than anything else. I, you know, I have a website and that's about as much marketing savvy that exists and it's not even my savvy. I've paid someone else to do it. But that led to more engagements. But on so sort of that's the yin, but on the yang, I was also still involved in um, working in high-risk environments. I spent a few months in Baghdad 
doing some armed protection for aid workers involved in the Iraqi constitution, a little bit of time in Afghanistan providing some advice on how uh, aid agencies can operate there when they have no budget for security and try to minimise or at least mitigate some of the risks. So that's some of the other things that I was I was doing over that period of time. Uh, then um, with that non-physical program, I decided to get a, a richer perspective on what it is to communicate effectively. So I went off and did a master's degree and studied postgraduate law and studied mediation. And then for a period of time, I was working as a mediator in the corporate space as well. So it's... Um, it's been an unusual journey, perhaps, in some ways. But at the end of the day, like you, Tony, I work with people. I, I meet people. I, I have conversations with people. I listen. I try to work out what their particular needs are. Perhaps I can offer a solution. Perhaps I can't. Uh, one of the many things I've learned over the years that if I can't offer a solution, it's much better for everybody to say so quickly and without any fuss. It's amazing. What a what a rich and colourful journey you've had. I mean, it, people are probably listening in here going, what the hell have I been doing with my own life? I mean, get off your ass and get out there and do something. It's just astonishing what you've accomplished. And and probably what you've seen and you've heard um, is is what we read about in a in a Lee Child book or a or some, you know, in a in some sort of Patricia Cornwall, um, Kathy Reich's murder mystery, um, Andy McNabb, SAS. I mean, it's you. You've you look at a movie and you go, that's just that will never happen in the real world. We're looking at it and going, well, we know that it'll never happen in the real world because it's chore you know choreography, but we can't tell. What it was what does happen in the real world, and you've got that as your reference point. It's just really is amazing. So I think probably the next question for me, which I'm sure everyone asks you, um, and I need an honest, honest answer. Mm -hmm. You've got my attention. I'm listening. At, at home, seriously, who who wins the negotiations and the, and the arguments? Come on. <laughs> I, I've learned that. Uh, if it's really important, my wife always wins. Yep. But I know that she's smart enough to let me win when it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what you're saying is that is that she should have been running all these courses and, and keynote speaking events because she she knows how to how to manipulate and 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 win Win over you. Well, manipulates a word that it's got a few negative connotations, but she's very good at navigating difficult conversations, and I really admire her. Like she's currently involved, still in child safety, and uh, what what she deals with uh, puts me to shame. Because uh, if I think back to some of the really intense and challenging situations, say in the Middle East or wherever. Um, Often there was a detachment because you were part of a team and in Baghdad, for example, you were part of the team and you, you were armed to the teeth. There was no, uh, no grey areas about, well, you know, if something significant happens, what are you going to do? Well, you'll, you'll respond with 
with force. Um, and we had a few encounters where we were ambushed and things like that. But why I admire what my wife does and what many other people like my wife do is that there's no 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 backdrop like that. She she goes into uh, homes where uh, police are required and they're really intense confronting scenes of drug abuse and things like that. And I, I don't think that I've got the patience or the skill to actually uh, to navigate that as well as I'd like to. Mm. Interesting. I mean, it, what's fascinating for me, um, and I think the listeners will probably quickly cotton on to this, is how uh, both of you have uh, in some ways dedicated or attracted or been attracted to the protection of other people. Um, and that's, that's uncommon. Um, is that something that when you were growing up, like the mates that you went to school with, are they going, yeah, yeah, you know, Rob, he was always going to end up doing that kind of stuff. I mean, he was, he was like, if there was a bully in the playground, he, he was the one in there negotiating and protecting, or does it come as a surprise to most, um, from, I mean, you don't know what, what your wife was like as a child, but was that, was that really, was that, well, was that, that, that wasn't me at all. Uh, I, I think, um, I was very fortunate that I had a, a really safe and secure, loving family environment. Uh, as a kid at school, I was completely disinterested in sport. Uh, so growing up in the 70s in Victoria, there were only two sports. That was Aussie rules, or BFL as it was called then, and cricket. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the only sports, uh, and I didn't play either. Uh, so I had no interest in any physical pursuits. It was only later, uh, when I was about 14, that I started to get involved in martial arts, uh, that I started to develop, to develop an interest in that type of activity. And then I joined the Army when I was 17. But uh, it, it wasn't a clear path for me to follow. And uh, I don't, I've never really thought of it. It's a really interesting question that you asked, Tony. I, I had to ponder that one. I, I ended up on this path, married to a, someone who's on a similar path. But perhaps uh, somewhere in that is that my, my wife and I have uh, five kids and uh, like all parents, we, we love our kids and we've done the very best we could to provide an environment. And, you know, there's just something wrong when a child in particular, isn't able to flourish because they have fear or they have some type of Damocles sword hanging over them. Uh, So together we've sort of ended up partners. But uh, again, you've asked an interesting question. I don't really know the answer to it. Mm, Because, I mean, it's we all get drawn to various... um, you know, passions and and work. You know, you know, some people want to be lawyers. Others want to be doctors. Uh, they've known that from a very young age. Others want to be politicians. Um, for me, entrepreneurship um, or I guess working hard was something that um, was there, but it wasn't necessarily when I was in school. I mean, my mates would say to me like how the hell did you end up here? I mean, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of persistence. 
um, and focusing on a horizon point. But I guess it, I guess you don't necessarily. What I'm saying is you probably don't need to know what you want to do um, right from the outset, and it's quite for some encouraging, especially for parents who have got teenagers, which is what what uh, my wife and I have. I have a son and a stepdaughter, and and so we we realise that they still haven't kind of worked out what they want to do. I mean, you must have known fairly quickly, 17 going into the army, that's, that's, um, I mean, that's a bold decision. Um, did anyone else in your family go into the army? No. And if I look back at it now, I think in part, I joined the army simply because I didn't want to um, stay in the town that I was born in and raised, uh, where life did revolve around footy and cricket and the pub. Uh, and one of my, well, one of my, my very first job when I left school when I was fifteen was working in a hardware store, and I absolutely detested it. I, I was, it was just brain-numbingly boring. And six months later, perhaps because of my involvement, uh, probably not, uh, the business went bankrupt, and I was unemployed. So I was sixteen and unemployed, and um, I just needed a job. Uh, so I went across to. Uh, New Zealand and I worked on fishing boats there for a little while then went down to Tasmania and did a little bit of work on building sites and when I turned 17 uh, I thought well what can I do where I'm not going to be battered from pillar to post and I have no skills it's a volatile economy like what can I do and I joined the army I think for job security more than a, a real passion for that path but then once I got in it, uh, there were, of course, lots of things I didn't like about the army, but one thing that I did like, and it surprised me a little, it's actually quite an egalitarian environment. Everybody joins day one, week one, doesn't matter whether you're 17 or 27, doesn't matter what you've done, day one, week one is the same for everybody. And if you work hard and if you, um, you know, if you invest in, getting the skills that are required, if you build good relationships, uh, then you can progress quite well. And that was something that I did value about the Army. And then in my case, after six years, I was actually medically discharged. I had an injury parachuting. So I couldn't stay in whether I wanted to or not. But I didn't know what I was going to do. What I did know, though, was I was not going to work on building sites or work in a hardware store. Uh, so. Uh, by that stage, I was quite involved in martial arts, and I thought, well, I like martial arts, and again, perhaps I was very naive, but I thought, I think I'd heard something along the lines of, you know, if you, you follow your passion, you'll never be bored, and um, I was passionate at that point about martial arts, so I thought, well, that's what I'll do. So I got out of the army, and I, I trained actually a bit like a lunatic. I, um, that was my whole life. I worked in pubs and nightclubs just enough to pay the rent and buy groceries. But I was probably working 30 hours a week in paid employment, but I would have been training at least that, if not more. Um, and then once you sort of, you get to a point where there's a tipping point of you, you've invested so much, that was my skill and my background from, a, I've come from the military. So where does that take me? And in my case, I wanted to go to the head of the river and I wanted to see what it was like to 
study martial arts at the source. So that's why I went to Korea, Japan and China for three years. And I lived on rice and pickled cabbage and it was actually pretty hard. It was, um, you know, always the foreigner, uh, not particularly welcomed. And then after three years, I came back to Australia and I was penniless. I, I didn't have two cents to rub together. So what am I going to do? Well, I, you know, I used to be in an airborne parachute battalion and I was a machine gunner and I've got a few black belts. Where does that take you? Not far. Uh, but in my case, I ended up uh, working in casinos, among others, in Alice Springs. And then when I was in Alice Springs, uh, again, I thought, well, what can I do to capitalise on my particular background? And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can um, carve out a career in the security industry. And I thought, well, what's, where's the best place to do that? And I thought, well, it should be somewhere challenging and where security is a real need. And that took me to Papua New Guinea. So there, there wasn't no, there wasn't a, a grand design, and it wasn't a clear path. It just evolved, and then luckily, things like uh, being interviewed on an ABC radio show all these years ago uh, led to invitations to do work in the corporate space, which then led to other things. Amazing. So we're kind of running out of time, unfortunately, and I feel like this could go on for another hour. Um, but I, I guess as we kind of wind it up, I mean, for those of us, and there's many now who've listened to you, but many that have sat in one of your keynotes and one of your training sessions, what are, what are some of the core things that you, you try and impart upon people that makes them reflect and stop or take, take action? What, what's your, some of your core messages? I mean, you're not, not going to be able to share everything, but. There's something that I, I really hold true and I, I I've tried to walk this talk is I think it's really important to be a participant, not a spectator. Uh, you know, it's just too easy to watch other people or other events, but everything ends, you know, uh, it, it's just so obvious, but it's true. Everything ends. And I, I really believe that eventually if, if I or one of my kids or you or one of your listeners or anybody, they get to the end and if they look back and all they can see is, easy option after easy option after easy option. At some point you arrive, look back and see those easy options, there can be no satisfaction in that. And the only defense against that lack of satisfaction is to consciously choose to be a participant in whatever arena it is that you operate in. And it doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to be something that's even, you know, um, slightly newsworthy. It's something that's this important to each person and in participation you stop sitting back with your arms folded on the sideline you say okay well I'm going to step in there and I'm going to have a crack and that is a large part of what I talk about and I know feedback from my book what I didn't learn at Harvard if I was to condense consistent feedback from a really broad range of readers is that it, it gives them that spark that you know you don't need an invitation you don't need a guarantee that the outcome is going to be good uh, what you do need though is to deliberately say right i'm stepping off the sideline i'm going into the arena and i'm going to do my best to make a contribution 
Interesting. And have you, I assume that over the years, you've had people stop you or give you feedback or email and say that this, this is what I, I heard what you said. And I, I, I got off and I got into the, I got onto the field and I started playing and have you had some fairly inspiring stories? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very uh, rewarding and sometimes a bit surprising. That, uh, like I, I remember one particular lady came up to me in an airport in, I think it was in Sydney, and, uh, and I'd, I'd never spoken to her, but she'd been in an audience and she came up and um, I won't recount what she said almost out of respect for her particular experiences, but it was it was really moving and she spoke of how she was in a, a relationship that just wasn't healthy she was in a job that she wasn't enjoying and she completely stepped out of that world into a, a bold new part and it, like I, in no way am i claiming any any credit for her courage and what she did but it was nonetheless very satisfying for her to have the, the generosity to associate me with being an element of her journey from one world to a better world. Mm, so great, Rob. Good on you. I think um, for those that have listened, and if you're involved in any conferences or your company has conferences and you want Rob to speak at, at one of them, then ICMI is um, our speakers bureau that we both use, and that's how... And they are a great bureau. Yeah, and so so you can reach out to them and and book because um, I know he's lost count of the number of events that he's done, but you know just keep letting them accumulate and uh, and someone somewhere in the universe is is notching up another one um, and uh, and good on you for for sharing and and um, inspiring others. It's it's quite it's quite. Um, uh, unique what you've set yourself without it's it seems like you've done it um with very with very little complication and the way that you talk about it is with with great humility i don't know whether that comes from martial arts uh where where you 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 need to exert yourself and express yourself against your opponents but at the same time it comes with with also respect um, of your opponent and of of the situation and and so you, I can hear that that that's it's not only with what you do with your work and your speaking but it's obviously how you live your life it's a it's a, it's it's tangible and and thank you so much for taking almost an hour out of your life to be on plugged and unplanned and we wish you all the best with with your your book on poetry and supporting uh, an incredibly good and and um, hopefully our paths will cross soon. That'd be great. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Tony. Good on you. Thanks. All right. Thanks so well. again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, 
for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.